Blindness isn't an unusual response to abuse and harassment. For a lot of people, actually acknowledging how much harm is going on around them or that a system isn't able to protect them, it would get in the way of them surviving the system. I'm Lee Matthews, and you're listening to The Good Problem Podcast, a weekly series unpacking the sticky art of doing good. In the aftermath of the Me Too movement, we saw the emergence of Aid Too and the resulting exposure of harassment, abuse and discrimination in the development and humanitarian sector. While the reports are shocking to read, it's no surprise. Abuse, sexual misconduct, racism and discrimination have been prevalent in the sector forever. And we continue to see reports naming major agencies in scandals. The rise of Aid2 has resulted in long overdue attention on these issues, and the voices are only getting louder. The latest report to come out is by Decolonize MSF, an organic, unofficial anti-racism and anti-discrimination movement composed of more than 1,200 current and former MSF staff and formed in response to decades of unanswered calls for change within the organisation. The report called Dignity at MSF, was a survivor-led initiative to publicly assess and disclose findings on abuse and discrimination within MSF, and the first to involve MSF's global and historical staff base, as well as community partners. On reading the report, it's damning. More than 50% of respondents witnessed or experienced one or more forms of abuse in just a one-year period. I invited the report's authors, Monica Mukherjee and Anab Majumdar onto the podcast today to talk to us about the report and their own experiences of working in MSF and what it means to have publicly authored a report like this. Welcome to the Good Problem podcast, Monica and Anab. Nice to be here. Thanks for having us. Yeah, it's great. Thanks, Lee. It's great to have you both. This is our first interview with two people, so we are going to do our best to manage it. But I'm going to jump in and ask you both something that I ask all my guests. What does the idea of doing good mean to you personally? I've noticed a lot of people that you feature on this podcast don't like this question and deflect. And when I was thinking about it and when I'd hear people deflect, I kind of wondered, like, why don't we like that question? And I was thinking, like, you know, there's a lot of things I can identify as not good, causing pain causing hurt, neglect, harm. These things are not good. And when I try to think then of what doing good means to me, a lot of it comes back to the idea of care, not like in a medical way of care top down, but like the care that we have to one another, to ourselves, and also the care we we take with things like what we believe, that we need to embrace complexity. So if you are going to take care with the truth, you need to acknowledge all of that. So I think for me, doing good has really come back to that notion. And a lot of the work Arnab and I have done, actually, I think a key reason we were able to connect so much is that we have a lot of value for care and see it in similar ways. Yeah, for sure. What about you, Arnab? I come from a from a family that has mental illness consistently throughout my, my family structure. And so for me, when I think of doing good, I think primarily in terms of alleviating pain. And from a mental illness lens, I think I was always interested in the the intersectionality of pain. You have all of these components like gender, economic status, all of these things that 
come into play with, with a subject like that. And I think that's been a framework for how I've tried to approach the work that I do and, and the work that I've been able to do with Monica these last few months is thinking about what pain alleviation means within the humanitarian sector and, and how we can contribute to alleviating that pain within MSF in the sector. Yeah. Do you think your definition of, of what is good or what doing good is has evolved over time or do you think it's been pretty static and, and stable? I think for me, it's definitely evolved over time. I know for me coming out of university and then grad school, I was first interested in just the idea of, you know, what I thought was doing good, you know, which looked like working with a nonprofit organization and working in the so-called field and, and being able to contribute that way and kind of very much following in retrospect, a kind of fantasy of what one is, is contributing to. And I think for me, what's evolved over time with a little bit of experience within the sector is just the kind of burgeoning understanding that doing good is complicated, that there are such things like sustainability and how the work is done, that it's not just enough to meet an objective, but it's everything throughout that, that process. So for me, definitely over time, what it's meant is that it seems as if the extent of the kind of work one can do to do good is getting smaller and smaller or becomes or has to become more and more thoughtful. Absolutely. About you, Monica, is it something that has has evolved or is it something you've always kind of had as a static belief around what good is? Oh, it feels so much harder now than when I was younger. (laughs) It just feels really hard to do good. Like Arnab, yeah, of course, when you're younger and maybe, maybe it's a common thing for a lot of us in our generation, you know, maybe something a hallmark of a lot of millennials that knew this sector existed and had these expectations. Like, was it that I thought it was a shortcut to meeting other people who would understand and be able to do this work? I don't know, but it feels really hard still to imagine what doing good is. And I think a big part of it is that it's not linked to profession. It's not actually about what your job is to do good. And in fact, you can do wrong. You can do harm in many spaces. And you can also do good in other spaces that maybe when I was younger, I was um, more ready to say and be judgmental. And I think now I'm much more open and um, comfortable. Maybe that's it. I'm more comfortable with the not knowing and not understanding and the unwinding (laughs) that I just wasn't ready or prepared for when I first started. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think you've highlighted a really key point there around the perception of working in this space, meaning that you were therefore a good person and that everything that is done within these organizations or within the sector itself is inherently just good. And I certainly kind of grew up believing that that was the case because how could these organizations cause harm or how could this sector be harmful? Everyone's just trying to help and and do a good thing. As you come through and you start to, to kind of unpack all that and see really bad practice, really harmful things happening, you start to kind of open up how you think about that. But even still, it's not until the last decade or so that there's been active questioning around is this really good or, you know, space to even have those conversations. Have you noticed more conversation more recently? Yes, but perhaps because we've provoked it. (laughs) Yeah. So let's, let's talk about that. We're here to talk about a piece of work that you have both authored as part of a movement called Decolonize MSF. 
which is an anti-racism and anti-discrimination movement, which is made up of about 1,200 current and former MSF staff. Before we get into the report, though, can you tell us a bit more about decolonize MSF and and why would an organization that's built on the idea of doing good need a movement like this attached to it? So decolonize MSF has been an organic movement that formally arose in the aftermath of the George Floyd murder in May of last year. There were longstanding challenges and criticisms internal to MSF about the structure of the organization as it related to a two-tier structure of international and national staff and whether such a structure was actually in line with social justice. So the movement arose in May and June of last year and started with the creation of of an an initial open letter by staff and survivors uh, of abuse and discrimination within the movement. It was a group of current and former staff members that were describing their experiences within the organization and really their demand to be heard and recognized and to engage with structural change and to, and to demand structural change on the issues that they were talking about. It's a complicated space. I mean, I think the question of why would this exist because people felt unheard, people felt unsupported. I think what's also interesting and, and a big reason why we included it in the report, this history, is that it was so organic. Like the original origins were that people who knew each other started a WhatsApp. And even though now, and as we begin to get feedback on the report, there's kind of this mythos that is created of like, ah, how organized were they? And what were they trying to do? The reality that we've uncovered and what seems to continue to be true is that it was just current and former staff who felt alone, built connection over their experiences. And then in those spaces of seeing something wrong, decided to do something. And then we're after the open letter. But what I understand from the original organizers is they were surprised. They just didn't do anything with the intention of really growing something. It was just that they did what felt right to them. And then an outpouring of people came. Do you think that they really understood the the breadth of what was occurring? I don't think so. We've also had the chance to meet with some other similar movements. And from what I can read also about similar movements like related to Me Too or Aid to or BLM in other industries, some of them, yeah, might have been a little bit constructed, but quite a few, it's something about it was accelerated by social media. Something of the of COVID and the remote, like all of these forces seem to come together and, and accelerate something that maybe wasn't, even if it was planned, it couldn't have been foreseen like this. Yeah. Yeah. It's so interesting. I want to go back to that open letter that you were talking about and, and there were 10 key demands in the letter. And on reading them, they strike me as not at all unreasonable, not in the slightest. In fact, they should be the very basics of what organizations should be doing and talking about and working on. Yet, as of recording this episode today, MSF still hasn't responded. Why do you think this is? It's for a lot of reasons. One of those reasons that I think also makes us uncomfortable because it's hard to acknowledge is that I think some in leadership believe they have responded, even though they haven't actually written something. And for a lot of people who've been doing this work, that's really hard to understand. And we do see glimmers of certain parts of MSF deciding to do an independent review on their own, in their own little section. They have not written or completely said that 
thanks to the open letter, this made it clear and it illuminated. That's not how progress has come. So that's one part that we've been trying to understand and also anticipate in our report is to give an opportunity for formal acknowledgement is, is that. But there are others, of course, who don't agree with the demands. I mean, I think that's the bigger reason and what certainly many in the movement and also in the sector are kind of afraid of and maybe is also a reality. It just makes me think about this from even just a reputational risk perspective as an organization. You know, the fact that there needs to be a movement to decolonize an organization and it's and it needs to release a public report to call it out is a massive public relations nightmare for one. And you would think that even the formation of a movement would cause leadership to actually step back and and say, hey, there's something very, very wrong here. If this was the private sector, that, that would have happened, I imagine. Why doesn't that happen in this case? One thing Monica and I have talked about in the past is who the organization is actually accountable to. So in MSF's case, MSF has, you know, a distinct form of independence within the nonprofit sector. The majority of its funding comes from individual donors spread out around the world. That might be part of the answer because it's accountable to a large population. Then perhaps it becomes more of a question of how the organization protects its reputation. That's just a hypothesis, but I think it's something worth thinking about compared to a smaller organization that might be dependent on a smaller number of donors or one that is dependent on government or or foundational support. Yeah. So let's talk about the report. In July this year, so really only a few months ago, Decolonize MSF conducted a survey on abuse and discrimination with, I think it was 359 current and former staff, as well as some external stakeholders. And that produced a report, which both of you are co-authors of, called Dignity at MSF. It's found abuse exists within MSF at a significant scale. A few key statistics that I pulled out of the findings are that more than 50% of people had witnessed or experienced one or more types of abuse within a one-year period. And that figure rises to almost 72% when considering the, the period prior. What is going on at MSF for this to be occurring at such scale? Well, the interesting question is, is it only MSF? I mean, this is a big part of what makes releasing this kind of information or even trying to look into it challenging. And it was something that those of us in Decolonize MSF also thought about, right, is when we've seen the fallout from the Oxfam scandal, what we see even now with what's going on with WHO in relation to the Ebola response and sexual abuse, clearly there is a misperception and and a justified anger that's possible, right? Somewhere in between these two things of like what all went wrong in your specific space versus also some very, very important things to look into. We have this consideration as well, and there's just not a lot of public data. And I think what's also interesting is that you don't really see very many actors voluntarily releasing this data. And what we have here with our report is something of sort of a midway, even though it's not MSF itself, it is current and former staff. And I think one of our questions that at least attracted us to doing this work was that of like, can we own this conversation? Is it 
possible for staff to actually lead a conversation on abuse and discrimination and say, hey, it's out there and we want to talk about it. And it is our problem. And we want to actually have this conversation versus having it dragged out of us through an investigation. One of the things that I think led us to the survey was just comparing our experiences within Decolonize MSF and the stories that we were hearing from our collaborators, which included current and former staff, and our sense that experiences of abuse and discrimination were widespread within the organization. And then when we looked at the organization's own reporting and what it communicates to the public about abuse and discrimination, it is communicating a small number of formal complaints that are made each year. It acknowledges that there is a problem of underreporting. And what we really kind of wanted to test out was, is this actually in line with what's actually happening within the organization? And that was really our experiment, which was to see whether this narrative that the organization is promoting is consistent with what we're hearing when we start to engage a significant number of of global staff. The other thing that I think informed the survey was this idea of what kinds of questions are being asked. Both of us had seen some internal surveys that had never been done globally, or certainly not with a historical staff base, but we'd seen the kinds of questions that had been asked. They didn't seem to be asking direct questions about the kinds and types of abuse and discrimination that people were experiencing. So I think that was also part of our question was just to ask the question. Yeah. And I guess the the data is only as good as the questions, right? So if you're not asking the right questions, you're not, you're not knowing. What I think is interesting as well is you've got, okay, the, the abuse and discrimination is occurring. That's one thing, but you've got the reporting systems, which you've just touched on, and then you've got response. And it's said that despite 60% of people reporting abuse to management or HR, only just under 9% were satisfied with the outcome. And more than half of respondents believed that people responsible for abuse faced no consequences at all. Good governance in organisations requires systems and structures that offer accountability. Who's ultimately accountable here at the end of the day? I'm not sure if I would hold an individual or even a level of management or leadership accountable to this. To me, the question of why reporting outcomes seem to be so unsatisfactory has a lot to do with the culture within the organization, which, which to me is tied to the structure of the organization. One thing I definitely know, having worked in MSF in Canada and the Netherlands, is there's always this culture of kind of letting go of things forgiveness, which is also, I think, also just connected to our industry. We try to be an empathetic and forgiving industry. We're composed of people who are supposed to have this this quality. I think what's interesting when it comes to reporting is how far does that extend? So when we're talking then about sexual abuse, when we're talking about racism, when we're talking about sometimes physical abuse, how far do we take this quality that we all see ourselves as having and see our organization as having, and at what point do we create a line? That's just coming from some some personal experiences within the organization. But I think that is one of the reasons we're seeing this is just a a deep hesitancy to to take action. And given how decentralized MSF is, to find this data across such a swath 
of respondents. The scarier answer is that it isn't just one person or one department. It is something that looks more pervasive when you see how widespread that feeling is. And I think that's much harder to try to change and dismantle, which is also important for those of us who want to change these systems, is to realize that it would be a lot easier if it was like an elected politician we could just boot out. (laughs) That's not what we're dealing with. And, and something has to be said about the two-tiered staff system within within the organization. There's an overinvestment in capacity and training for the so-called international staff group, where there are different access to benefits, a different career progression. I mean, that's built into the system. And so I think a logical byproduct of this is that the structure and the organization is deeply hesitant about creating consequences for international staff within within that system. And obviously a big part of the reluctance to address this would be the challenges with dismantling that structure and what it means to people who ultimately benefit from that structure are very likely the people that are occupying the powerful positions, leadership positions, positions of influence. How do you think that a dismantling of that system would work in practice? For me, the first step and and where we squarely are is convincing some we need a dismantling of the system, which might be surprising for some because I think those who read the report might have been convinced already. But the more challenging conversations, the interesting ones, the the ones that at least have been pushing me to think more deeply, they are coming from those who were not initially convinced that seeing this two-tier structure was leading to problems. And what I, I find looking at the data is that we see a picture of how the current structure, which is not only an MSF, it is across the doing good industry that's international, right, is that it hurts all of us. And I think that's the part that I find also interesting about the approach we took rather than only looking at racism alone. By looking at abuse more broadly, we begin to see that actually it's not just one group that's being affected by this. Even those who may be in some positions with privilege, they're also being hurt by this this situation. Certainly when you read the stories, and even though they've been anonymized, not all of them are coming from people of color, people on national staff contracts, not all women. Many people are suffering from this kind of reporting system. And I think that to me is a really important acknowledgement that when many people begin to own and see, hey, the status quo isn't working for most of us, then you can begin to think, what else do we want to do? I had an early experience at, at MSF, which you know, started to make me really question how the organization was, was doing its work. I was attending a, a welcome days training, which is meant for all new international staff before they fly out into the field. And there was a poster with these two staff categories, international and national staff. And then you had to use these words and stick them under each category based on what, what each group would, would ostensibly bring to the mission. And I found something about the exercise this idea of categorization, of essentially having, you know, these blanket statements, which is that, you know, international staff always bring external capacity, right? Or that local staff always have some innate, you know, local knowledge that can't be replicated. There was something about this exercise that to me connects to the heart of this issue, which is where you have a structure, which is built off of certain assumptions, which is that external capacity must come from elsewhere, which is that when it comes to the principle of neutrality, 
that only foreigners or outsiders can be actually neutral and not folks who actually live and reside in the countries in which they work. To me, that's, that's a recipe for a discriminatory structure and a discriminatory process. And I think beyond the outreach work we have to do right now, which is, you know, being still in the discovery stage of what's happening in the movement and trying to convince people that there is a problem, it's completely revisiting the assumptions that are underguarding our entire method and way of working. And then connected to that is completely revisiting this idea of where capacity comes from. Because I don't think we exist in a world anymore where medical and logistical capacity can only come from a few, from a few countries in the so-called global north. I don't think that was the case 20 years ago, but I, I certainly don't think it's the case. It's the case today. And if it's not, then I think there needs to be a real revisiting of the structure and the way in which organizations like MSF work. Yeah, as you're, as you're talking, I'm thinking about the, the structure stuff and thinking about how these systems are just replicating colonial systems. There's this binary of us and them and the helper and the helped. Even within MSF and this two-tier system, it's still an us and them. And we talk so much about trying to dismantle or address the effects of colonization through the work that we're doing in this space. But every single entity, every single process is is just replicating those structures and those systems. In some ways, it's sort of shocking that you could lump together stereotypes about the Middle East, Latin America, South America, and Asia, and put them all together under national staff. And these these kinds of phrases that I'm sure many have heard of calling people lazy, that they are motivated by money, that they don't really want to be here, that they aren't humanitarian, that we can build on both what were the kinds of ideas and beliefs that sustained colonialism, but we actually, I mean, the humanitarian sector has also done some work to reinvent and construct new categories or, or develop them. And what I always find is an interesting litmus test is when you tell someone who doesn't work in our sector some of these notions, it sounds a bit wild. Right now I'm living in rural Ohio, and I will admit that there is a certain conservative view. It's very close-minded. But I have to say the reaction some of my neighbors might have to hearing the beliefs that have often followed national staff, even they have a hard time digesting that kind of racism. I mean, it's a creativity that I don't know what we can do. We have to also own that we made this. We have become complicit in this. We have accepted it for a very, very long time and have not been challenging it. And as you were talking right back at the beginning, you know, something happened in the past few years, a combination of a lot of things that have begun to raise questions that have been raised over and over from many different voices over time, but those voices are getting much louder. And I think that the risk we have, and I know certainly for me, it feels like that, that I record these podcasts with lots of different people. And it feels like we're talking about the same things and the same issues over and over and over again. But we're in an echo chamber somewhat, you know, we're, we're actually a minority within a larger sector that is talking about these things. And not only do we need to dismantle 
these perceptions within the sector itself and the organizations, but also going back to the start, this wider belief amongst the general public that these organizations are just inherently good and and therefore everyone that works in them is inherently good and could never do something harmful. Absolutely. And I think MSF has two protections in that, right? You have both the international and then you have the medical. And Maybe in the last year in particular, because of the pandemic, there has been more of an up-close view of the limitations of the health system and how harm can also come from different health policies and actors and how there's a variety of beliefs within. We've sort of seen that. But both of those things have actually helped protect MSF, that it's not only that it's an international organization, it's also it's one of doctors. So for the public to really understand both is a lot to be able to grasp. It's also something we've been talking about, too, is the necessary level of engagement when the public is going to have an effect on the organization. So there's no question that there are folks who donate to MSF because they see themselves in the image and this fantasy of the traveling cowboy. And I think it raises an interesting question, which is not just the need for the organization to pursue reform and how it does its work, but all the way down into how it markets itself with the wider public. And I think in so much as it's dependent on the wider public, it implies that we also have to engage with this image and this fantasy with the wider public as well, if we want to see lasting change in how the sector operates. Monica, you're talking as well about the health sector and the position of medical professions and and how with that comes status and power. And again, the general public's perception that you are a good person. And we know that there's a lot of abuse of power in the medical sector. Yes, this is happening across the sector in the humanitarian space, but is there something about MSF and the the medical model that actually means that this is happening more within MSF? It could be. I think that the hierarchy The education process, especially in the global north surrounding medicine and medical expertise, is a hard thing to ignore and has not, I mean, I haven't seen that be part of the discussions when we look at our organizational culture and why we are the way we are. We talk far more about what neutrality means and independence means, but we don't actually talk about the fact that people come from medical spaces or they may not have medical expertise and are joining a medical organization. For me, it was a challenge because I have worked with other aid organizations and before MSF, most of them identified very clearly as working in health. And I found it quite surprising and I still find it very difficult to understand the work that I was doing with MSF as medical versus contributing to health. And I think these kinds of discussions will have to come up for MSF in the future regardless of what Decolonize MSF is doing. I think this is the question of what does the organization want to contribute towards? What expertise do we have to offer? Where do we want to put our resources? Looking at the findings, it's apparent that there are definitely people within MSF who aren't aware, don't experience or witness the abuse detailed in the report. But it seems difficult to believe that something so widespread couldn't be seen at that scale. Were there deliberate resistance attempts or or active attempts to influence the results of the survey? The short answer is yes. We saw once we started looking at the results that there was a number which we which we estimated somewhere between five and ten percent, where if you looked at all of their answers, they were all extreme numbers. So in these responses, it was 
everything is fine within the organization. I've never seen racism. I've never had the need to report. And also looking at the open-ended answers, those were also the respondents that were also attacking what our movement was trying to do. So whether that was a, a deliberate effort or an organized effort, who's to say, but it was definitely something that gave us some pause as we were analyzing the results, which was who is this group? And what's accounting for very intense resistance that someone would put into an anonymous survey? Blindness isn't an unusual response to abuse and harassment. There's some really interesting work that's been done by Jennifer Freed, who has focused on sexual harassment. And a big part of her work is looking at institutional betrayal. A lot of her work has focused on how institutions can react with courage when they receive complaints of sexual harassment. And one phenomenon she identifies is that there is betrayal blindness, that for a lot of people actually acknowledging how much harm is going on around them or that a system isn't able to protect them, it would get in the way of them surviving the system. So even though we did receive and we we note in the findings this small number that seemed very consistent, we don't see everybody who responded positively on, no, there's no problem. No, I didn't witness anything. That's a smaller group. It's, it's very possible. There are many people who have this, I think we referred to it as multiple worlds. And I think that other world is one where you may be staying blind unconsciously because you need to be able to cope with your everyday. Yeah. And I guess that question is, what have they got to lose? Whether it's that unconscious blindness or whether it's an active resistance to it, there's something to lose in there for both sides. It's a big deal to come out and speak publicly about these issues and, and put your name and your face to a report like this. Were you fearful of repercussions at all? Yes. <laughs> yes. I laugh because there were many conversations together, especially on my side, because Arnab had done this process a little bit before by voicing his story. But definitely, this was something we thought about a lot and considered very, very carefully. It was definitely something we talked a lot about, and I think it can make one feel very paranoid because we spend so much time thinking about how to frame things, how to write about our findings, how to reduce legal and personal risk, that process itself can be quite taxing. And then I think there's a kind of vulnerability by, by placing yourself out there. And, you know, I remember at one point we were questioning for the first time, like, what's going on our social media profiles? Is there anything that we should be wiping? You know, and, and all of a sudden you start to become very objective about how you, you look to other people, which is probably not too healthy. But one of the reasons to do it is also, I think, the trust we place in our audience and in you know the folks that are reading it and kind of taking a leap of faith there that overall, the small attacks that we face will be worth it. Yeah. How's working on this report impacted you personally, though, given what you just said about, you know, the paranoia, the fear, the having to consider your, your public persona, your profile, your future work opportunities? What's been the impact? There are similarities, but there's also been differences for both of us throughout the whole process, which it's been really good to have Arnab and be able to reflect with. There were points where I would receive more sexual harassment or objectifying comments, for example, that he did not receive. There were assumptions in how people would respond to messages 
based on what they thought our credibility was rather than who was sending a message. There was a lot at play that I think not having someone else you can reflect with, I would have probably gone much deeper into paranoia. But to have someone to validate and say, hey, actually, no, that isn't happening to me. What is the message? No, that's not okay. (laughs) It was enough to keep me grounded as things were happening. But certainly that's been part of the reality of how this, this report was created. Working within Decolonize MSF, it's been humbling also to see how much I'm missing out and what my blind spots are. Because something about the process of collaborating with Monica and us comparing notes and us talking to each other about the kinds of messages that we're receiving, it really is quite clear that, um, you know, based on gender and numerous other factors, that we, we have different experiences within the movement, even though we're doing the same work. In addition to that, I think, yeah, the complementarity that I think we have, which is if one of us is, is getting a little too stressed reading messages and comments, the other person is taking a break and feels weirdly grounded. Having this space to kind of balance off each other has been really, really helpful. And, and I know certainly even comparing it to the one experience I had before, which was around this time last year, writing a kind of solo article, kind of sitting with it alone and not really being quite sure what's what's happening. There is something really comforting and lovely to work as a unit and, and as a team together with Monica and with the broader active organizer group. So it's only been around a month since the report was released. And I know, you know, we're talking about that paranoia. It's easy for our minds to imagine what might happen. Has it been a more positive experience than you might have imagined or expected? Yes. And the moment that makes me say yes is when I got a message from a stranger and they just sent me a whole story of what had happened to them. And it was not somebody who responded to the survey, but just felt safe to say, I wanted you to know this happened to me and even wrote in the message. He didn't know why (laughs) he'd sent it, but just was really glad someone had the guts to say something. That for me, I think has been what's carried me through when we've had the more difficult moments. And and I think will be what carries me through when more difficult moments will come because I didn't expect for me to realize where my values had crystallized. Like It's more offensive to have looked into the question of abuse and discrimination rather than the fact abuse and discrimination is happening at this scale. And we were able to do all of this work and and come to some kind of idea of patterns that we could begin to to respond to it. So that part I didn't expect to feel as certain about, but I, I do now. And I also think I'm looking at my work like that more. It's about projects rather than employers. Like the next thing I work on, I want to be with people who believe that. Monica and I started our collaboration in the winter of this year, in January, February of this year. And initially that collaboration was really focused on the nature of storytelling and of sharing and disseminating testimonies that were originally created and shared in the open letter from last year. And I think that our approach to the report has always been probably just doing justice to the stories that people are spending time and emotional energy to share with us. And I think from that perspective, we feel good and proud about work that attempts to do justice to those to those stories. And I think that's the thing that we're always thinking about is when so many people have given us their time to share something so personal and in some cases quite traumatic, then, you know, we kind of owe it to them to present it and to give it the best birth that we can give it and to ensure that it's disseminated and shared. Ultimately, what do you hope comes out of this report? One thing we wanted to achieve was we wanted the report to propel further action within the organization by showing 
you know, even here with a limited sample, which we can't say is fully representative, it was to show a way for the organization to do what it should be doing, which is to do a true global and historical survey, engaging current and former staff, and critically, a survey that engages patients. One thing that has always come out in these discussions of decolonized MSF and a criticism of decolonized MSF is that, well, you're so focused on staff, you're, you're distracting from the social mission. And that's never been our argument. Our argument has always been that if abuse and discrimination are widespread within staff, then surely that is translating and seeping down to the patients that we serve. And so I think for us, it was, we're showing you some early alarming results. It is your obligation from a duty of care perspective to do full justice to this by doing a complete survey to find out what's actually happening within the organization. And because I think the solutions are complicated when it comes to reforming the organization. It's about getting the full picture of what's happening first before we have a discussion about what future interventions and initiatives look like. The other message that I would want people to take, especially if they have suffered abuse and discrimination themselves, is that there's something you can do. Because in the face of all of these public statements and calls for change that haven't really amounted to much. I I really identify with the hopelessness and the helplessness we all feel. And what I hope that survivors in particular will see through the report and what we did is that two survivors put their name on something and worked with a whole bunch of people (laughs) to learn, to understand, and that they also created knowledge, that we have knowledge, that we have skills, and that that's certainly possible, even if you don't work in MSF. Wherever you are, you can do this. And that part, I hope, will sink in for others, because I think that's where the real change will come from. Leaders have been letting us down for a while. Maybe it's time for us to stop expecting them to have the vision we need. Absolutely. I'm going to take the lens out more broadly now and and ask you a a philosophical question, which is taken from the work of a a philosopher called Kwame Apaya. What do you think the greatest social challenge of our time is and something that future generations might look back on and wonder what on earth we were thinking? There are so many answers to give this. Where my brain goes first is inequality, climate change, Resistance to antibiotics, like there are all of these massive problems that actually I think the answer to this question is one above. What we have is a lot of interconnected problems that many of us in this current generation, we can't quite conceptualize as interconnected. And I really hope that future generations, when they look at us, they will say, how could they not see the links between climate change and armed conflict? Obviously, we needed to have an embedded response and we should not be working in silos and we needed interdisciplinary work. That would be my hope because I feel that way often when I read the news and I try to follow projects and interventions. I don't think we are grasping the complexity of things and how they go together and how they aggravate one another. I don't have an answer as good as Monica's. That was great. <laughs> but I would say that we were going back and forth about what to title this report. And, you know, we landed on this word dignity. And I think on some level that is connected to the social challenge of our time, thinking about who we're missing and who we're treating with dignity and who we're not 
and why that's the case. And, and the reasons, as Monica suggested, are complex. They're embedded in the capitalist system. They're embedded in the history of colonial and national struggles. They're embedded in all of us in terms of what each of us have individually internalized. And I think that's the challenge is how we are moving collectively and individually into a world where we're treating all human beings with a baseline of dignity. Yeah, that's what makes us excited to do this kind of work. Both excellent answers, by the way. Yeah, that was a good answer. (laughs) (laughs) Sliding in there. (laughs) If you could tell the world something and know that every single person would hear it right now, what would it be? You matter. I think so much harm probably comes from a lot of our own pain, but it would both be preventative and restorative when I say you matter. You know, your vulnerability is a strength. I think a lot about the folks that are in this movement and they're all showing a part of themselves that, um, at least for me, historically, I've tried to hide. Something really difficult happens in your personal life, your professional life, and you try to kind of repress it and move on, but maybe you haven't fully dealt with it or engaged with it. There are a lot of pressures in our society to do that, but I think part of that process of this, of this struggle that we're on is showing it to each other thinking about it, understanding it, so that we can come up with solutions to this problem. But I think it starts with a fundamental reform of what is strength. Yeah. A couple of last questions that are entirely unrelated to this subject. Where is your favorite place on earth? It's the first place I ever really traveled to. After I finished uh, university, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I was reading Life of Pi at the time. In the beginning of the book, it takes place in this in this fictional zoo in Pondicherry. And that summer after graduation, I was getting really uncomfortable because my friends kept asking me what I was going to do, and I had no idea. And so one day, I just kind of blurted out that I'm going to go to Pondicherry, just kind of thinking that they would they would stop asking about it, and and that it would sound interesting enough that it would buy me some time. And then the rest of that summer, they kept asking, you know. When are you going to go? When are you going to go? And, you know, my parents are Indian. I'd never actually traveled there. So at some point, I actually just had to go because I committed to this. Some of the things that I experienced there and some of the people that I met also started my love for humanitarian work and the possibility of this work through through some of the organizations that I worked with there and some of the people that I met. And uh, it's also just a beautiful little town. It's like a beach town. But yeah, I mean, I mean, I think a lot about some of my first experiences, you know, in my early 20s and kind of using that to inform my next steps in this sector. I have a lot of favorite places, which is why it's always hard to pick. But probably the most recent favorite is Guadalupe, because after a very, very difficult assignment. It was the place that I decided I was going to go because it was time to fulfill my dream of living on a tropical island for a few months. And I just went and sat on a beach and was very uncomfortable with not knowing what on earth I was going to do in the world. And it was a beautiful place with a very complicated history. Also, I mean, colonialism is not a thing of the past there. But somewhere in, ironically, what could have been maybe what some people do in like volunteerism kind of stuff, just going and traveling and living somewhere for a while with no agenda. It was really eye-opening to see how a place that you may not think about on a daily basis, what is the everyday life for people there? What is the struggle? What is the beauty? And it's a gorgeous place that's worth visiting, but also amazing to understand the political history of and why 
colonialism is not over. <laughs> what books are you reading? So actually, right now, I just finished a program in creative writing. I'm trying to finish my first book. So I'm reading a lot of Junpa Lahiri's work, Unaccustomed Earth and the Namesake and Interpretive Maladies. But I guess I'm just in the space where, I mean, because a lot of her work is about, you know, the wider Indian diaspora and how to kind of, you know, move between these two identities that I have, it makes me think a lot about, you know, my place in the world and where some of my thoughts and ideas come from. It's also been helpful in a way, I think, to be reading stuff that's a little bit outside of, of the sector where I can have some other things going on so that by the time I kind of return to activism work, I'm coming from a place where, where I feel balanced. But she's also a beautiful writer. Monica? I also try to rotate what I read because it's easy to get sucked in. So I, I try consciously to read at least like one nonfiction and one fiction at the same time. So right now I have Frontlines of Peace by Severin Odisser, and I'm trying my best to not already preach to everyone they must read it because I'm only halfway through. But I, I imagine for many people who are fascinated by these questions of who can bring peace, is it outsiders or insiders? They would find this book fascinating because her argument is very, very clear that actually everyday peace is and can be achieved by those who know the context and are living it. So that's that. And then my fiction is totally different by Raven Leilani Lester, which I don't know if you've read, but is a totally different voice and take on intimacy, which is the story of a young woman in her 20s having an affair with a white married man. And it is a startling, uncomfortable. Her prose is just like amazing, but there's something also in taking that kind of story and owning it and seeing what intimacy means. And also that it's not all good. You don't always root for the narrator. Oh, it's so, it's so wonderful to read. And I think that's why we all should be reading more fiction. I think we'd be healthier if we read more fiction. Absolutely. I want to thank you both for your time and for your energy and your openness. But more than that, I want to thank you both for being brave enough to come forward and write this report and speak out about it. We need to be having these conversations over and over and over again, because I think that's the only way that we're going to have change come at a much faster rate than it's moving at the moment. The speed is, is glacial and it needs to be much faster. So thank you both for your bravery and for spending your evening with me. Thanks for having Thanks us. Thanks so much for having us. This podcast is recorded on the lands of the Jajawurrung and Tongrung people in the Kulin Nation. We acknowledge them as the traditional owners and true sovereigns of the land. Despite the impact of European invasion, we acknowledge their deep understanding and connection to country and rich cultural knowledge. We acknowledge and pay our respects to their elders and elders of Indigenous communities across the world, past and present. Podcast episodes are made possible through the hard work of my amazing team, including audiovisual production by Brianna at Bambi Media and creative production by Olivia Allen. The Good Problem Podcast is a project of Alto. We partner with purpose-driven leaders from the business, non-profit and philanthropic sectors to achieve aligned, ethical and sustainable impact. Find out more at www.altoglobalconsulting.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram by searching for Alto.